Good afternoon. It's great to be with you again. Perhaps you could keep that passage open there before you, whether you've uh, got your Bible in hand or whether you're following along on a device. I've titled uh, this message, Justification Matters. And that's because this passage is all about matters of justification. You'll have perhaps seen that word repeated a number of times in those short few verses. But it also shows us that justification is important. It matters in, in, in that it's a central part of the Christian faith. But also justification matters in that it shapes and directs our behavior and our living. And that's how the two parts of this passage connect together. The telling off from Paul to Peter and then this sort of discussion and commentary upon it. The commentator uh, Philip Ryken says this about the letter to the Galatians. He says, Galatians is a letter for recovering Pharisees. The Pharisees who lived during and after the time of Christ were very religious. They were regular in their worship, orthodox in their theology and moral in their conduct. Yet something was missing. Although God was in their minds and in their actions, he was not in their hearts. Therefore, their religion was little more than hypocrisy. The Pharisees were hypocrites because they thought that what God would uh, do for them depended on what they did for God. So they read their Bibles, prayed, tithed, and kept the Sabbath as if their salvation depended on it. What they failed to understand was that God's grace cannot be earned. It comes free. And I hope that this will be a message that will do a couple of things for believers. I hope this will be a radical sort of one-step program to realign your faith and your life, if it is perhaps somewhat out of sync. If there's an element of that sort of sense of legalism and of having to work to become something that God has already said that you are. But there also may well be those following along and listening who haven't yet had that moment of giving their life over to Christ. And perhaps this might be an alarm call to abandon the sinking ship of self-righteousness and to cling on to the life raft the gospel offers. Because the premise here is that outside of Jesus Christ's righteousness transferred to you for your sin, we're doomed. Why? We must labour this point before going further because it will make sense of just what Paul is getting at here and just why he's so annoyed by what happens with Peter and some of the others who follow him. Why would it be that outside of Christ we're doomed? Well, we must remember, we must look back to the story of God in the Bible. God is good. He is glorious. He's the creator of all including us. I say it in that way deliberately, that he's the creator of all, including us. He's given us a good world, a good life to enjoy. And yet rather than enjoy all that God gave and our privileged place within that creation, as his image bearers, we, like Adam and Eve before us, have been discontent dissatisfied, disillusioned with our lot, sensing somehow that God might be holding out on us. He might be holding back. We've broken away. 
Rather than being content to be image bearers, we've sought to be God. We sought to take a place, take an authority that is not our own and rejected our identity as creatures. Though God has only ever done what is good, right and perfect, we thought we know better. We are better. We'll do better ourselves. We'd like to take creation, yes, but we'd rather perhaps do away with the creator. This is rebellion. It's treason. This is sin. It's not just about actions we've taken. It's about a posture. And this sin has grown into a sort of a cancer that affects and tarnishes every area and every facet of life. It's not a case of isolated incidents. It's not about external events that go on around us. It's not about us succumbing to cultural pressure. Though All those things might happen at times. It's about our nature. It's about what is within us. We see it in the fruit of our lives, yes. We see it in anger, in lust, in jealousy, in greed, selfishness that destroys both us, others around us, and the world. And so, how can a good God merely accept what is evil? He cannot. To be loving, he must remain just. He must judge. He must eliminate evil. So, outside of Christ, apart from a radical reversal of sin, we are doomed to God's just judgment. That's why justification matters here. And then this passage will show us, okay, well, what difference might that make to our lives? And we get just one glimpse in this conflict here. Luther begins his commentary on the book of Galatians, the Protestant reformer, by saying, In my heart reigns this one article, faith in my dear Lord Christ, the beginning, middle, and end of whatever spiritual and divine thoughts I may have, whether by day or by night. Justification matters. And that's, more than anything else, what we'll see in this passage here, that justification through faith alone, by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, is not only the central thing, it is everything. First here, turn with me to those first few verses, 11 to 14 here. We see a just rebuke from Paul here. And this is interesting. You'll be able to look at this earlier. You can either turn the page or swipe to the left or the right, whichever way it works on your device, to see actually there is a break uh, and a transition in the writing here. Because up to this point, Paul has been really laboring the case uh, to defend his authority. In chapter 1, verse 1, he said that he's been appointed by God. Paul, an apostle, not from men, uh, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's argued for the divine origin of his gospel. Verses 11 to 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We then see that he's gone to great pains to show his acceptance by the church and by the apostles in the rest of that first chapter and the beginning of chapter 2. He's really labored that point. So this now feels like a transition. But 
for all that consistency that Paul has with the other apostles that shows the genuineness of the revelation that Christ had given him, that does not mean to say they were always right. But when Cephas Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And there's something of a cutting sort of thing that happens in, in Paul's words here. When Peter came, I opposed him to his face because there are those who are opposing Paul behind his back. But when I saw Peter, I told him to his face. I was honest. I was straightforward. And there's a significance to why Paul is, is so, sees this as such a significant incident that he must actually challenge someone who is a significant figure in the early church. Just a few verses back there at the beginning of chapter 1 there, we read that along with James and John, he's one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. But the context is that Antioch actually had been the first place in which uh, the believers had intentionally uh, sought to proselytize uh, those not from a Jewish background. There have been cases where that had happened, but this is the first time where this intentionally happens as a thing, where some of the brothers there decide, we're not just going to go to Jews, we're, we're going to go out to the Hellenists, the Greeks, those who follow a different culture. And actually, God's grace had been with them, and they saw significant growth. And now, there stood the potential of all of that growth being lost. And them going backwards. Why? Verse 12, we read along here. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. The word um, in, in the original language is he, he shunned, he ignored, he pulled away from them, isolated himself and separated himself. And again, the word there is, it speaks of sort of making a boundary, putting up a wall between himself and others because of their culture. We've gone from uh, previously the believers feeling as though, you know what, the discipleship of people under Christ is more important than other cultural tags and baggage. It doesn't really matter so much of where you've grown up and how you've lived before as that you get to hear the gospel and you get disciples. That's more important than the old Jewish food laws that would have ruled them out from eating with Gentiles. Now it's gone backwards to a sort of apartheid. Withdrawing, putting up walls. Why were they doing this? It tells us. He was fearing the circumcision party, verse 12. Fear has overwhelmed convictions. Desire for approval has overwhelmed desire to be faithful. That's the heart of this hypocrisy here. Don't miss that, but that's the essence of hypocrisy in this passage here, is just that not living out the actual convictions of faith that you have and instead living out of fear and desire for other people's approval. And what's the fruit? Look there at the next verse, verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. Even Barnabas was taken in. Like a pied piper leading others to potential ruin. It grows 
And so here's Paul's cutting summation here in verse 14, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Interestingly, you could turn that sentence around and put it the other way and it would tell you an equally valid truth. If their conduct wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel, that if you kept the truth of the gospel, your conduct would be in step. And that's the important thing I think that Paul is going to show here. Why is it that this encounter and conflict goes into this very sort of detailed and and technical description? Because that's exactly what Paul believes here. That if you had thought right you would have done right. If the truth of the gospel is at the forefront, then your conduct will be in step. Doctrine matters. Look at the practical difference it makes even just here. That it will make a practical difference to the priority that you give to mission. It will make you more honest. Look at the honesty of Paul in contrast to some of his opponents. It makes you someone of integrity. Actually, you do what you really are most convicted of. And look at how freed he is from the fear of others. Doctrine matters. There's a just rebuke. But look down to verse 15 and 16 here. We see that justification is really the heart of everything going on here. Uh, Bill Clinton's 1992 election campaign was hitting trouble amidst a number of personal scandals. And so, in a kind of roundtable meeting, his chief sort of strategist, James Carville, hung up a sign that they developed in those meetings to try to summarise what were they going to be about. They needed to cut through and for their message to be clear. The sign said, change versus more of the same. The economy, stupid. And don't forget healthcare. In reality, the campaign slogan really just became that middle one. It's the economy, stupid. And there's stories from Bill Clinton himself of sort of hanging post-it notes with that same message on for himself in the mirrors of hotel rooms as he's preparing to give speeches. There was this one issue that people really wanted to hear. What were you going to do about the economy? For Paul here, it's about justification, stupid. That is the central message. It's worth asking why you might need to say that. That might seem like an obvious thing. Wouldn't wouldn't that be something we would all accept? And yet, actually, it's something that is in danger. In the book uh, Worthy, Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher uh, notice this. They say, the foremost dangers modern evangelicalism faces are the idolatry of the family, the idolatry of political power, And the self-trust that comes from a message that offers three steps to self-perfection. We're not at risk of losing our morals. We risk losing the gospel message. Something we encounter every time we speak publicly or interview incoming church members and recognize that our audience is largely illiterate about the doctrine of justification. A truth Martin Luther said was the linchpin upon which the whole church would rise or fall. It's become seen as something that's passé, Something that's already done, what would we need to say more things about that for? And what practical relevance anyway would doctrine really have to our daily living? But for Paul here, it is everything. Paul corrects them here, verse 15. We are Jews by birth, that is, we are ethnically Jewish. We're brought up within this, as opposed to, and he'll contrast them now, if we're not Gentile sinners. 
We've been brought up ethnically as Jews. We've also been brought up religiously uh, as very upstanding sort of citizens, very respectable, very moral, very religious. Yet we know that a person isn't justified by works of the law. No one is justified by a sort of religious moralism or a self-righteousness, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to note that it's not just religious people, or at least outwardly or obviously uh, religious people, who have this temptation to rely upon a self-righteousness for their salvation. We see it in unbelievers too. We see it in our culture around us. It has a code of self-righteousness, of focus on philanthropy, on being woke, on being an advocate for marginalized groups, on taking a vegan diet, living as carbon neutral as possible, being politically correct, being true to yourself, being authentic. There is, there absolutely is, a sense of a sort of moralistic code by which you can attain self-righteousness, even if you don't have any element of organised religion to it. Yet we are not saved by any other means than Christ alone. Nothing, no one else is appointed by God as the judge, as the one who has the place of deciding this, by which mankind is justified for our sin against God. And yet there's hope here, because this might sound challenging at first, but there's hope that justification is possible. Verse 16 here, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You might see it there in your Bible, uh, a footnote there. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You may see a footnote there that tells you it could also be translated, or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. (coughs) I don't know which one is the most accurate translation. My Greek doesn't go that far. But I can tell you that the second translation is a very helpful one. Through Jesus' faithfulness, justification is possible. We're saved not through anything that we have done, anything that we can do, or anything that we will do. Equally, we're not damned because of what we haven't done, what we can't do, or what we won't do. We're saved simply because of what Jesus has done for us in our place, as a substitute and as a representative as a substitute in that he's died the death we should have died for that extent of sin, of treason, of rebellion that we began by thinking about. But he's also served as a representative, living the life we should have lived. And we're saved by that transfer of that righteousness and that faithfulness of Jesus on the one hand and the transfer of our sin to him. Martin Luther, to come back to him again since he was mentioned from the beginning there, uh, says this as he came to faith reading Romans 1 verse 16. He says, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, 
Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God, and said, as if indeed it is not enough, that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. We've believed in Christ in order to be justified, Paul tells us, verse 16 here. That is the central concern, that is the central point. We believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. That is our problem. That is our remedy given through him. It is not about a religious and moral code. It is not a means of self-actualization. It is not a grounding for social political concern. It is, we believe in order to be justified, in order to be made right, in order to be reconciled to God himself. For by works of the law, verse 16 continues, no one will be justified. To put it like this, the fancy word for it is immutability, I think, unless I wrote the wrong word. That's possible. The idea is this, that we hold no cards in our hands that God needs. Works don't work in justifying you because he doesn't need them. What do you hold in your hand that he could possibly need? What do you have that you could use as leverage? Nothing. Nothing. Thank God there isn't, that it isn't about being saved by works because there is nothing I hold that might sway him. Yet, as the hymn Rock of Ages tells us, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. It's justification, stupid. Thirdly, justification by faith, it's only logical, as Spock might put it. Look to verses 17 to 21 there with me. Go back one last time to Luther. Speaking of his life and his attempts and his works to try to save himself, he says, I was a good monk and kept my orders so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out on this. For if I continued much longer, I would, what with vigils, prayers, readings and other such works, have done myself to death. We are saved only 
by faith in Christ and his works. And now Paul will flesh this out just a little bit for us. And flesh out a little bit of the logic and the basis of his theology here. He says, verse 17 here, If in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too, that is, as well as Adam, were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And he's answering a hypothetical question that he expects might come up. Is the problem, Paul, with your idea of justification by faith and this transfer of our sin onto Christ and his righteousness onto us, does it run the risk of making Jesus now a sinner? Is he now implicated, perhaps, in our sin because he has suffered for it? No. And the reason that Paul might go here, because you might think, well, perhaps that's a strange hypothetical question to go to. But think about how the situation has come about. People are tempted not to eat with Gentiles because they believe that somehow they might be intoxicated by being around those who are not part of the people of God yet. And so perhaps they're asking, well, would believers eating with Gentiles intoxicate them? No, because look, Jesus dying and saving us doesn't intoxicate him. So you ought not withdraw. Actually, the reverse should be true. If this is how Jesus treats us and responds to our sin and to our shame, shouldn't we have all that much more motivation, actually, to be around those who don't know Jesus yet and to share that with them, that they might be saved? In fact, one of Jesus' It's given to him as a title of sort of criticism, that he's a friend of sinners. But he takes it as a moniker that's positive. He's happy to take it. Yeah, I am. I'm a friend of sinners. And perhaps we ought to look more like our master. But Paul continues that thought. He says, if I rebuild what I've torn down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is it that he's talking about here? What is it that he thinks he's torn down and that might prove him to be a transgressor? Well, what he's torn down is the idea of being saved through the Old Testament law. The idea that you would have to do to become. If I rebuild that, what I've now torn down by telling you that actually you can only be saved through Christ, I actually prove myself to be a sinner by going back to that kind of idea, that kind of sinful self-reliance. It comes back to the nature of what sin is that we said at the beginning. It's why it was important to spell that out. I've torn this down and shown you that that doesn't work. If I go back to that, I prove myself to be a sinner. And there's a grim reality and a hopeful expectation here, verse 19, that through the law, I've died to sin. A grim reality. All the law can do is tell me that I'm wrong. It can't offer me hope. Because I'll never be able to fulfill it. Apart from a saviour who lives and dies for me, uh, it's hopeless. It can diagnose me, but it can't give me the remedy. And yet there's a hopeful expectation here. I died through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. A hopeful expectation that there might be a life after that death. Calvin, writing on this verse, says, To die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. I can't 
keep it. I accept that verdict. But now I might live to God through Christ. Whilst the Lord does rightly condemn me to death, there's hope I may live again. And look to verse 20 and 21 now, as this finishes, that the hope centers on this mysterious union with Christ. Where now I have died, yes, my sin has been exacted upon on Christ at Calvary. And yet, like Jesus rose to new life, empowered through Jesus himself, now I rise to new life too. So that whilst the law offers only death, Jesus brings new life. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, or as in the reading earlier it said righteousness, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Through this mysterious and wonderful union with Christ that we receive, we die, but we die to live for him. And so, Paul concludes, and he's coming back to this conflict with Peter here again, I do not nullify the grace of God. And the suggestion here is clear is that what these people were doing in withdrawing from the Gentiles and no longer eating with them, going back to a pattern and a code that hadn't worked, wouldn't work, couldn't work, Paul will say to him, though you're a Jew and you try to live like a Jew, it's not worked for you. And now yet you're trying to make people who've not grown up into this go into this failed and failing system. You're nullifying the grace of God. Interestingly, the same word there, nullify, is the same word draw back from verse 12. It's clear what Paul has in his mind. In pulling away from those people, in pulling others away from actually discipling Gentiles, you're nullifying the grace of God. On the contrary, Paul wants to do the opposite. He wants to maximise the grace of God. He wants to put it at the very forefront. He wants to do all that he can to make it look as great as he can and as evident as he can. Because otherwise, Christ died for no purpose. As bad as the bad news is of the extent of our sin and our rebellion, Christ's death at Calvary has a clear purpose. Because here is God answering our sin by paying for it in himself. Justification matters. It matters. Maybe more than anything else. Luther, one final time on justification and its value. It's as if the doctrine of justification is lost. The whole of Christian doctrine is lost. It's the core of Christianity. It drives the way we live. You see that in just this one incident. And notice what Paul does. He doesn't, he doesn't address this pastoral concern just by saying, Peter, don't do that. Do this. And he never does. He always addresses a pastoral concern like this and someone making a mistake by saying, hmm, here's what the gospel says. Now, live in light 
of the truth and the hope and the grace of the gospel. It's a, and perhaps, depends what kind of a, a childhood you had. I, I was a bit of a naughty child, so these are familiar words for me. It's that moment of, particularly with a mother, of what were you thinking? You've been exposed for whatever it is you've done, but it's then, what on earth were you thinking? That's what Paul is asking here. What were you thinking? Because here's what you should be thinking. And it would change what you would do. In 1996, um, in the run-up to the 1997 general election, uh, Tony Blair gave a number of speeches across a few days at the party conference. And the idea was to set out you know, what, a, what a Labour government might look like after so long of uh, conservative rule. And in amongst them, one speech in particular really was the one that took the attention. And he said at one point in it, ask me for my three main priorities for government and I will tell you education Education, education. What is the chief focus here of the gospel, of Paul's writing here, of our life? Justification, justification, justification. Let me pray. Father God, we recognize this afternoon our own sin before you. Lord, our sin is not exactly the same as Adam and Eve's, and yet is very similar we too, in dissatisfaction and disillusionment and discontent, have turned our hand against the one who has made us and fed us and kept us. And we have thought that we could find a better life outside of you than with you. And we've turned against you. We've rebelled against the only one who has always done what is good, right and perfect. And we've instead, in our own ways, damaged your creation and your creatures. And yet, in your love and your mercy and your compassion and your grace, you have responded to all of our sin. Every sin, every step outside of you that was really an accusation that you weren't good, that you weren't right, you weren't perfect. That we could have found something better outside of you. You've responded by giving your son. And Jesus, scorning the shame for the joy set before you, you went to the cross in order that you might take our sin upon yourself. You might take the punishment deserved for that. But that also you might gift to us your righteousness, your perfection. Father, we thank you that we are not saved by works. What a hopeless, hopeless message that would be. But that we are saved through your work. And Father, I pray for those of us who are believers, but who perhaps need encouraging and reminding of all that you've done and reminding that it's not on us. It doesn't depend on us. It's not about us doing to become loved by you, but that we already are. It's about us being who you've called us to be, that you might encourage us. Or for those places where perhaps we're tempted at times, much like Peter, maybe with good intentions, to add on additional rules that aren't needed. And in some way, we've, we've nullified your grace in ways. Forgive us and help us and realign us, we pray. 
And Lord, for those who may be listening, who maybe haven't had that moment yet of giving their life to you. Lord, I pray that you might cut through. And that, Lord, you might be pleased to reveal your son to them. To find salvation and justification in Christ. We ask these things for your glory, Lord. Amen.